All right, listeners, welcome to episode 65 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sipman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here with my great friend, Sam Etherbell. Hey, Sam. Hi, Matt. I'm excited for this one. You know, we do this once a year. It's our annual mailbag episode. That's right. We're opening up the mailbag. We're going to get some questions from people named John and Matt and Jack. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so I checked, Sam. The last time we did one of these was in December of 2021, so just under a year ago. We uh, opened this up to you know, our listeners, and we're going to answer your questions. And we should say, we did favor our Patreon subscribers. That's right. We did. Our special, most dedicated and devoted listeners. If you want to get priority in your questions being answered on future mailbag episodes, let me just say, you can sign up on patreon.com slash knowyourenemy. That's right. And if you're a new listener, and if you've never gone back through our catalog of past episodes and listened to a mailbag episode, these are kind of wide-ranging. Listeners ask us about politics, about the right, of course, but also, this time, a lot of religious questions. Yeah. Always questions about literature, what we're reading, fiction, those kinds of things. We didn't get any questions about bourbon this time, as far as I know, which was a disappointment. (laughs) If you want to make sure your question gets answered on the air, ask us about brown liquor. Well, Sam preempted my housekeeping items. uh, (laughs) But as he said, for $5 a month, if you subscribe to Know Your Enemy on patreon.com slash knowyourenemy, you get access to all of our bonus episodes. But as always, we're grateful to our partners at Descent, who sponsor the podcast. And one thing Descent does for us is that if you subscribe for $10 a month, you get access to not only all of our bonus episodes, but you also get uh, a digital subscription to Descent. And, uh, you know, in this holiday season, as we're entering it, when people are thinking about donating to various causes or organizations, that kind of thing, I did want to flag something for our listeners about Descent, which is that from now until the end of the year, they're offering these limited time gifts if you donate to the magazine. And these are one-time donations. If you donate $50, you get a tote bag designed by working socialist artist Tabitha Arnold. For $250, you get the tote bag plus a selection of books curated by Descent's editors. And for $500, a one-time $500 donation, you get invited on a guided walking and eating tour of New York City's Lower East Side. Learn about the history and culture that makes the neighborhood one of the world's greatest (laughs) eating destinations. This was the promo uh, language I was given. But I think Sam and I, I'm not sure of the timing, but I think we might try to go on that. Yeah. I want to eat my way through the Lower East Side. I've drank my way through the Lower East Side. I've never (laughs) eaten my way through it. So this will be a new experience. (laughs) So consider doing that if you're one of our listeners with some cash burning in your pocket. Descent is, of course, awesome. We love it. We write for it. They help us out with this podcast. And consider it. Yes. As always, we also want to thank Jesse Brenneman, our intrepid producer, and Will Epstein, who does the music for the podcast. Please rate and review us on iTunes. And should we just get to it then, Matt? I think so. Here's our mailbag episode where we answer your questions. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Sam, let's get started. All of these questions were offered on Patreon or on Twitter or via email from you, our listeners. Yeah. They were great questions as always. I really am struck every time we do one of these, Sam, by the fact that we have such smart and interesting listeners who 
ask us really interesting questions. They're always so well written. A lot of them are recommendations for future topics for the podcast, which we, <laughs> yeah. we probably won't read because I usually read them and go, yep. That's a good idea. We should do that. <laughs> That's like the answer to every single one of those. But the, the questions themselves are also just always extremely thoughtful. And it's a testament to how brilliant all of you are that these questions are always so good and that we have to narrow it down to a smaller batch among like a field, a sw huge swath of really, really high quality <laughs> questions. Yeah, there are many questions we wanted to answer but couldn't. And, you know, we kind of group these questions together. So some of them we may kind of read and answer together. And, you know, I think the first batch of questions we're going to get to are just in time for the holiday season. <laughs> the thing you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table, religion and politics. Yeah. Especially the religion part of that. We had a lot of very interesting religious questions. Sam, do you want to read the first couple questions? I'll go ahead and read it to you, Matt, resident religion expert on the pod. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> this one did come in on Patreon. It says, one thing I love about your show is its exploration of the intersection between faith and politics on the right that isn't reflexively hostile toward religion. I was raised in a secular household, which left me with a persistent curiosity about religion. What advice would you give to a leftist like me who is interested in religion but doesn't know many other leftists who express religious faith? And what potential, if any, do you see in religion as a source of inspiration for and platform for building social movements in the U.S. right now? Ah, huh. the perennial religion and the left question. But also there's yes. that, that beginning question about sort of person from a secular household with an interest in religion. My, my answer is that you should start a podcast with a dedicated Catholic and you're a good friend. <laughs> right. It helps if you start as a more or less secular Jewish person, uh, <laughs> a friend, a uh, weird Catholic, and then, you know, drink late into the night. Those were some of our first conversations, Sam. I remember talking a lot about religion with yeah, you. Yeah, like, I learned so much. And I'm very grateful, by the way, Sam, that you're so curious and interested in some of these questions and sure. topics. Some of those first conversations, you would ask me a lot about religion. It wasn't me just forcing it on you. No. Uh, I mean, I do that to people sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, as I was thinking about this question, I did think I'm interested in kind of what you mean by interested in religion, meaning there's kind of a more academic, intellectual interest in it. Like religion is just something you don't know much about and you want to learn more, right, in a general way. Versus, I think, a more personal search, like some kind of a spiritual tug. So my answer would kind of depend on, are you someone who is actually interested in religion in a personal sense that you're kind of on that quest or search or yeah. you know, working through those things or not? It's very hard to learn about religion in general, I think, mm -hmm. right? Like, are you talking about Christianity or Islam or Judaism or yeah. Buddhism or Vedanta? And what I might recommend would probably depend on how you answer some of these questions. And, you know, it is funny that becoming Catholic, it wasn't really driven by reading that much. Yeah. It was a very much an experiential thing as much as anything. If this person were to just be kind of like, they listen to this podcast and they probably admire you, I can't imagine. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why they would. And maybe they're interested in Catholicism. Would you recommend somebody just go to Mass? Well, that's really fraught because you show up at the wrong mass with the wrong priest you hear just the most deranged right-wing sermon, or homily, I should say. To the extent possible, I would suggest researching, asking around, yeah. so on and so forth. Let's get to the political aspect of it. So the, the, the next question, which is related and more about the politics, 
This person asks, Matt. Not Sam. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be curious to hear you talk about how you think the U.S. quote unquote left, however you define it, should relate to religious believers. For example, I saw a few DSA fellow travelers get mad on social media a few weeks ago when a pastor gave an explicitly Christian invocation to begin a DSA event. We're going to avoid DSA talk too much on this podcast. I'm going to get in trouble. Given the role that religious belief historically has played in left social movements, particularly black freedom struggles, I don't find it a big deal, meaning this person doesn't find it a big deal to have a Christian invocation during a leftist event. Yet, going back to the 18th century, the left has always had a lot of non-believers among us and been animated by hostility to institutional religion. So here's the crux of it for Matt. I guess I'm asking if Matt feels awkward as a believer on the left. What limits should leftists place on religious morality being used in political struggle? And when does the particularity of someone's religious belief overwhelm the universality that many lefty non-believers are working towards? Do you feel awkward? <laughs> well, no more than I usually do. Like, I always feel awkward, but not because I'm religious and on the left. In fact, that part of the question, maybe I should just say now, I've been treated incredibly well on the left, despite being very openly religious. Yeah. And there are a lot of reasons for that, I think. The part of the left I tend to hang out in, you know, yeah. the way I kind of wear my own faith, that kind of thing. But, you know, I think the other parts of that question, especially at the end that you read, Sam, really gets at the very crux of the matter for me. Like, thinking about the place of religious appeals and religious rhetoric and language on the left. I did write a piece for the New Republic back in spring of 2021 titled, Wither the Religious Left. And there was one part of this quandary I got at that I think is important. And it's that right now in the United States, we're in a period of religious disaffiliation, right? Spiritual, but not religious, people leaving kind of organized religion. It doesn't mean everyone's becoming atheists. Whether you call this secularization exactly or not, I think is disputed. But we're living through a period where religious disaffiliation is happening in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's happening across the board, liberal churches, conservative churches. But those trends are even more kind of powerful among more progressive-minded people. A couple years ago, 538—this is a quote from an article they published. The Democratic coalition isn't dominated by a single religious group, and Democrats don't prioritize religion the way Republicans do. In fact, the Democratic Party has been growing steadily less religious over the past 20 years, end quote. Mm. So a couple things going on there. I I mentioned the broader kind of religious disaffiliation that's even more prominent and powerful kind of on the broad center left in the United States in the Democratic Party. And unlike the religious right, the religious left kind of takes religious pluralism seriously. My friend Jack Jenkins came out with a book in 2020 called American Prophets about the religious left. Mm-hmm. And it was really striking. Just, you know, it was kind of on the ground reporting from all over the country, all kinds of different faith groups. It really is a motley crew. And he calls the religious left a coalition of coalitions. Mm. That to me is really interesting. That, like, to be religious on the left, you're in that broad context, which offers a lot of hurdles to religion helping the left in some ways. But it's also one of the problems, sort of the one that was pointed to in the question, that like the particular and the universal come into conflict when the religious left is composed of these many faiths, which are very particular, but which have to be in coalition with each other somehow, and sort of somehow united on the basis of what tends to be somewhat unstated, shared philosophical and moral goals. As a sort of general rule on the left, I feel like we don't have like a clear 
<laughs> leftist minimum <laughs> that's like articulated in a platform anywhere. And so when it comes to these particular faiths being in coalition with each other and then within that being in a coalition of coalitions in the Democratic Party or on the left, do you lose the power of the particular, which is what attracts people to religion and why it can be so powerful as a motivator for politics or, or for spiritual devotion or whatever? Do you lose the power of the particular when you have to be subsumed within this project, which is so multifarious and universalist in principle? Yeah, that really is the crux of the matter, Sam. I, I would say this. I've long thought about this line from the poet Christian Wyman in his memoir, My Bright Abyss, where he says, the only way to deepen your knowledge and experience of ultimate divinity is to deepen your knowledge and experience of the all too temporal symbols and language of a particular religion. Mm. And there's a lot I could say about that passage from Wyman. He's drawing on this theologian, George Lindbeck, that says like the religion of your origin has such a bone deep hold on you that it's like your only hope for true religious fluency. Wyman says he wouldn't go that far. But nevertheless, it's, I do think it's true that like the kind of sustenance you would want in a social movement trying to achieve something difficult comes through particularity, yeah. right? There's no kind of religious Esperanta. There's no moral Esperanta even necessarily. And so the more powerful religion's going to be politically and socially, the more particular it mm. will be. And that, I think, runs up against the kind of universalism the left rightfully, I think, is committed to. So where does that leave us? My position has always been that there's kind of two ways to think about religion and politics, broadly speaking. You can worry about, like in a kind of Rawlsian public reason way, did someone cross a line by being too religious in politics? Right. Right, like a kind of contamination theory. Is this hygienic public sphere being kind of befouled or transgressed upon by too particular overt religious language? Yeah. Or another way of thinking about it is that in a democratic politics, people are going to bring all kinds of things into their politics with them. Right. Yeah. They're going to speak from their position. They're going to speak out of a, a language and tradition that they know. And rather than kind of policing boundaries, I think I'd rather say, like, what is the ethic people should bring with them if they share their religious convictions in a pluralistic democratic society? Yeah. And I actually think the, the kind of prospects for that are better than maybe a lot of people assume. It's like, can politics be transformative? Can people kind of realize things about other people? Can you see something in another person's position that even if it's in the language of a faith you don't share, it kind of makes sense to you? Yeah. You know, I think those things are possible. And so I think working through that issue of how you can have particular attachments, but be a part of a broader universalist political project is one that's worth working through. And I see that as kind of like the problem and the opportunity of the religious left. Yeah, I see that too. I was thinking when the, the first person asked the question about their interest and curiosity about religion and the other questioner asked if you felt awkward. And I mean, I had these conversations with you. I've seen you have conversations with others about religion. And I think that because the left attracts people with at least a moral, if not spiritual hunger, a deeply felt sense of righteousness or an obligation or sense of morality, opposition to suffering, and a sort of willingness, or at least in principle, a desire to encounter the other and, you know, break bread and figure out what we can do together. That, like, religion has a lot of interest to people on the left, given that they're in a conversation with somebody, they feel comfortable asking questions about it. And that's also kind of the basis for 
kind of what you're describing, the way that people with religious commitments can be a part of a conversation which is both particular and universal. It also just reminds me that like we invite people to participate in the movements of the left on the basis of identities that are really different from each other, whether that's like an identity based on your workplace or on your gender, your sexuality, your gender expression. Good movements are capable of giving people space to see the ways in which, you know, some kind of formative experience of suffering or powerlessness or injustice has some kind of analog in somebody else's experience and that somehow those experiences are bound up with each other. That's like kind of how I think of what the project of the left is. And so I just think kind of the work that is required to incorporate the religious left more completely into left politics is the work of left politics in general. And, you know, I think too, that even if you are drawing on a particular tradition, let's say the language of drawing from the Hebrew Bible, right, of the Exodus story, mm -hmm. right, of deliverance, of being in the desert and, and looking for the promised land, a language of justice and righteousness and deliverance, yeah, right, and, and even freedom and liberation. I don't really think if you speak about that in the idiom of, again, appealing to, say, the Exodus story or the Hebrew prophets or passages in the New Testament. I don't really think those are totally not understandable to non-religious people. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. We live in the United States, which has a history seeped in Christianity. And so yeah. I think part of this for me too gets into some of our conversations we've had over the years about how much do you root left politics in a distinctly American idiom? And to the extent you think that that's probably a good idea or, or it should be in the mix, I think you're going to very quickly run into this question of religious language too. Yeah. Should we move on? Yes, please. <laughs> we got a bunch of questions about literature, uh, especially fiction, because we talk so much on the podcast about nonfiction, but I think we'll be able to talk about both. So we got a question from someone who was saying how much they like it when we talk about writers, that they love the Didion episode. We had another question. Mm -hmm. This person loved our Saul Bellow episode and noted that mm -hmm. there was a drive-by on John Updike when we talked about Christopher Lash. <laughs> if you haven't heard true, that episode, true. go back. It's very funny. But this person said it would make them happy to hear us chat about our favorite writers and works of fiction. And another question from someone who was asking asking what we've been enjoying reading lately. Well, Sam, I think you should start since I okay. uh, filibustered all those religious questions. Well, the truth is I spent like two months reading every novel by the spy fiction writer John Le Carre for a forthcoming <laughs> article in The Baffler about a collection of his letters that's about to come out. I won't go on about John Le Carre. Probably a lot of listeners know him. Maybe their dads read him. He's a great English spy novelist, my favorite. Maybe, you know, I don't know if you put Graham Greene in the category of English spy novelist. He did a lot of other things, too. But I, honestly, I read so much of him. So that's a lot of what's in my head. Which is your favorite of his, say, of the, the Smiley novels? My favorite Smiley novel. Smiley is a character. Yeah, George Smiley is kind of one of his main protagonists who is recurring and is kind of the anti-James Bond He's like, you know, this like flabby <laughs> yeah. cuckold who uh, uses his brain instead of gadgets and suave. Suave, yeah. <laughs> I think Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, is my favorite smiley. Huh, interesting. It's also the first that I read. But my favorite Lick Array overall, and the one that I recommend to people who aren't necessarily interested in like the spy fiction genre, is his book, The Perfect Spy, which is the most autobiographical 
and has the most like overall literary merit. It's a really good book. Was Le Carre in British intelligence? He was. Yeah, he was in both MI5 and MI6. His breakout book, he wrote two novels while he was still working for the Secret Service. He wrote three. And his third book, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, was his breakout book, which you've probably heard of or seen several movie adaptations of. And after he wrote that, his nom de plume was identified with his real name, which is David Cornwell. And he also made enough money and left left the Secret Service. <laughs> left the circus, as they call he it. He <laughs> left the circus, as he calls it, yeah. Uh, he denied that he had been a spy for many, many years after that. He just said he had worked for the Foreign Office. So Sam's fiction recommendation is the spy novels of John le Carre. Do you want to do one? Well, I'll just say what I've been reading lately, because I, I admit especially the last couple of years, I haven't read as much fiction as I used to. Is there something that you have to do instead, reading like 600-page books for some kind of job <laughs> or something? But I think that it's beyond just like work requirements. It's true, I read things to review for work in a sense, but most of them I would read anyway. But I have to say my reading habits are like lighting one cigarette off the other. So I often go on these dives into particular writers where I'll read a bunch of their work and then find myself reading people they read or reading yeah. people that influenced them or, or their contemporaries or whatever it might be. Lately, that's meant I've just been reading a lot of like diaries and letters and memoirs of writers. Yeah. Recently, Ned Roram died at the age of 99. He was a famous composer, but also a famous diarist. And he knew Christopher Isherwood and Edmund White. Ed wrote the introduction to Ned's diaries called Lies mm -hmm. uh, that was uh, covers like kind of the age years in his life and the death of his partner. So I just started those, but I've been reading a lot of that, like <laughs> gay diaries and memoirs in the kind of circle of people I'm interested in. Again, Edmund White, Christopher Isherwood, that kind of thing. It is a fun experience reading the ephemera of a writer. For the the Correa piece I read, the biography, obviously the letters, which I was nominally reviewing, but really like anything I could find. When you have the opportunity or give yourself permission to just go that deep, it's a really fun experience because you get such a holistic sort of sense of a person. Yes. I think it's also like the autodidacts kind of method yeah. for better and worse. But yeah, I, I, I pick individual writers I go deep on. And it's, it's kind of fun because to give an example of how this plays out. So listeners know, you and I have both been into Gary Wills. And for about a year now, I've been reading Wills like very seriously, I would say. Yeah. And you start to, like talking to your friends about that or whatever. And like recently, my friend Dylan, listener of the pod, hey Dylan, sent me this book called Album for an Age by Art Shea, A-R-T first name, S-H-A-Y, last name, Art Shea. Mm. And who was Art Shea? Well, he was the photographer who accompanied Gary Wills to Memphis Oh wow! after Dr. King was shot and took some of the incredible photos of that first memorial service for King in Memphis. Wow. And why did my friend Dylan send this to me? Because this kind of memoir-ish book of Art Shea's the foreword was written by Gary Wills, right? Oh, wow, cool. So it's kind of like once you read the big books of someone, I find it very fun to read like the random introductions and forewords. Oh, they yeah. Their letters, their diaries, that kind of thing. I thrill to that experience. I know that's very nerdy to say, but the, the like, <laughs> like I'm just fascinated by even the gossip we talk about on the show, right? Yeah. Like I'm fascinated by the lives of writers. 
That's why you're such a big reader of acknowledgments pages. Oh, yes. One must pay close attention to the acknowledgments. It's an essential, <laughs> essential thing. You know, who's someone's agent? Who do they thank? Who do they not thank? That kind of thing. But, you know, that, that's my reading method. And it means sometimes there are, there are major authors I've never read because yeah. I never went down that rabbit hole or I haven't yet gone down their rabbit hole. Yeah, it's less systematic I mean, it's systematic, but it's like obsessive. <laughs> yes. Fixation. Yeah. yeah. Me? Obsessive? Compulsive? Never. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing now about Janet Malcolm, who I've talked about in the pod before, one of my favorite nonfiction writers. Uh, she has a posthumous book of essays coming out. And I'm, I've run out of her books to read. I've almost run out of her essays, but I'm like searching for the things that like didn't get a lot of attention or I had never heard of her. I never saw anybody else write about about her. One thing that I'm going to include in my review is her review of Making It, the oh, amazing <laughs> Norman Bedard's book. It's one of my favorite reviews of that book, which longtime listeners will know we talked about with David Cleon. Dave Cleon. Her review is great. I was glad to see that she, like us, recognized its literary merit. And also it's like total <laughs> neurotic pathological issues. Uh, can I make one more reading recommendation? Sure. I have another fiction wreck, which is one of the best short stories I've read this year. It was written by Hannah Gold. I don't know if you know this writer. Uh, <laughs> in in Harper's, Harper's Magazine. It's a short story called The Loud Parts. Yes. Extremely excellent. I'm a huge fan of Hannah Gold. Her boyfriend is more dubious. Um. <laughs> a great writer of, of book criticism and as well as you will see if you read this story, which we'll put in the show notes of short fiction. No, Hannah's seriously one of my favorite writers. I tell people that all the time. But I'm glad you mentioned short stories because I do love short stories. Mm -hmm, me too. My first literary love as like a 15-year-old in central Pennsylvania, was Hemingway's collected short stories. Uh -huh. <laughs> There's something about them, like you can read them on a train. All those kinds of reasons short stories are fun. But I also love the form. And yeah. I'll just give two of my favorite short story writers. They're both Catholic, actually. <laughs> One is Andre Debuse, not oh, yeah. to be confused with his more famous son, Andre Debuse III, who's written novels that have been turned into movies like House of Sand and Fog and yeah. been like Oprah selections. His father was kind of a writer's writer, and I think just an incredible short story writer that's Andre Debuse, D-U-B-U-S, and his just selected short stories. It's actually a great, like, greatest hits collection. You mm -hmm. should start there. And the other, which I kind of landed on partly through my fascination slash obsession with Andre Debuse, is a writer from West Virginia who spent a lot of time in Charlottesville, where I lived, doing his MFA, named Brees DJ Pancake. Oh, yes. You know who's a huge fan of DJ Pancake? Who? You would not be surprised to hear this. Dan Sherrell. Oh, amazing. Yes. He Friend of the pod. Guest. Man, now I'm really regretting I haven't had a long conversation with Dan about Brees DJ Pancake, but he was from West Virginia. And I kind of expected, I'm glad this didn't happen because he's such a talented writer but i was sort of half waiting for someone to write like priest dj pancake the short story writer who predicted trump yeah or something because he's from west virginia he kind of writes about kind of down and out characters he gets at something about life in certain parts of the country i was just waiting for someone to kind of use and abuse his I'm short glad stories that didn't happen. Yeah. yeah he died really young right yes he committed suicide 27 yes and so all we basically have from him there's one collection of his short stories. Now there's a Library of America edition that has letters and fragments and stuff. But there's one collection of his short stories. It's just called, I think, 
the stories of Priest DJ Pancake. And there's only like a dozen of them. And he was this kind of genius who produced these amazing short stories and then killed himself at age 27. And yeah. this is all we have. And it's like this guy's talent was just unbelievable. Yeah. Anyways, those two, Priest DJ Pancake and Andre Debuse, I think are incredible American short story writers, and uh, I recommend them. Great recommendations. All right, Sam, let's move on to the next question. This is one, I hope it doesn't get us in trouble, (laughs) but here's the question. Would you two be able to talk a little bit more about this great point I just heard from Sam? And that must be a reference to you going on the Jewish Currents podcast. Yeah. The quote is, if anti-Semitic jokes aren't funny, then we're in trouble. Interesting line. And then he says, specifically, I'm wondering what Matt thinks about that heuristic in the gay experience. Capital G, capital E. (laughs) I like that. I feel like it's something that works generally, meaning this kind of approach to humor, this line we just cited about if if the jokes aren't funny, then we're in trouble. It's something that works generally for any outgroup where something that actually looks abusive is actually a performance of affection. But dot, 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 big soup there, right? (laughs) I like this question. Yeah, unpack the question a little too for listeners, maybe. Okay, Uh, well, so I'll say that this person obviously is a great discerning consumer of podcasts because they also listen to the Jewish Currents podcast that is called On the Nose. Get it? On the Nose. (laughs) And I went on a recent episode, which was called The Jews. We'll put a uh, link in the show notes. It's really about Dave Chappelle's controversial monologue on November 12th on SNL, in which he talked about Kanye and anti-Semitism and Kyrie Irving and like this kind of moment we're in with sort of certain black celebrities getting in trouble for anti-Semitism, blah, blah, blah. The episode was hosted by friend of the pod, Ari Brostoff, who has been on our show. And there was also Jasmine Sanders and Rebecca Pierce, both brilliant writers, and me. (laughs) And uh, the reason that I ended up going on is because I actually texted Ari because I had seen the monologue a couple times, and then I had seen the discourse on Twitter, some of which was very hostile. People thought that it was really anti-Semitic, it was bad. And I just thought it was so funny. I thought it was so great. I thought it was like the best thing I'd seen Chappelle do in a long time. And so I was checking with Ari, you know, like a gut check, like, did you think it was funny? Like, am I crazy? Mm -hmm. And Ari did think it was funny. (laughs) And we had a complicated conversation about why, and then as a result of that, no good deed goes unpunished. Ari made me come on the (laughs) podcast to talk about what we talked about in the text messages. But the point that I made there, it's deliberately a little provocative, but what I'm saying is that for me, I think anti-Semitic jokes are so funny and so much of Jewish humor internal to our community, but also people make Jew jokes all the time. I think they're great. I think they're funny. And Chappelle made some of them too, you know, in that, in the monologue. I, I want to recommend that people listen to the Jewish Currents podcast so we don't go over the whole thing. But my point was that for me personally, I've come up with this like new heuristic for whether we're in a really dangerous place with anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And that would be if I heard an anti-Semitic joke and I thought, you know what, that's not funny. Like we're too endangered. We're too unsafe. Huh. Our community is in danger. So you, you shouldn't make a joke like that. And I think, again, it's a, it's a blunt instrument, this heuristic, but uh, I do think that like with Chappelle, his jokes about trans people aren't funny because trans people aren't really safe enough, <laughs> you know? Like uh-huh. I've seen those performances of his where he makes the trans jokes and they seem to be based on a false premise on his part that like 
oh, you know, trans people, that's like a new normal thing. And we're all allowed to just sort of like joke about their oh, humanity. I see what you're saying. You know what I mean? And like, I just think that's a misapprehension. And so for me, I'm like, I'm like now committed to like the minimum condition for like whether I feel like <laughs> the Jews are safe is like if somebody tells me a great joke about Jews being cheap or complaining or whatever, do I think it's funny or not? <laughs> and if I don't think it's funny, I'm like, oh shit, we got a problem. <laughs> So would you say in a way that like the funniness of a joke then is not contained simply within the joke? Meaning you might respond to the same joke differently in two different moments? Of course, of course. I think all jokes basically function within the kind of social environment in which they're told, which is one of the reasons that the internet has created such a problem for stand-up comedy. Uh, because really yeah. stand-up comedy is supposed to take place in one room. The comedian's sort of like reading the room and like... Pushing or walking up to that edge. Or, or getting pushed back. But I think like one of the things that is becoming one of my abiding principles about this stuff is that I really think I disagree with comedians who think that like comedy is all about pushing boundaries and like throwing bombs right. and this sort of libertarian politics of comedy where you're supposed to be able to say whatever you want and like you should antagonize people because actually that's not how comedy works at all no, like comedy no. functions to sublimate a sort of tension, anxiety, a contradiction into laughter, like into a room of people who might have felt uncomfortable with the premise of the joke laughing at the punchline. Mm -hmm. That means that comedy actually has this potential community formation function. And it obviously does for, as this person said, outgroups, like Jewish jokes, including Jewish jokes about death and suffering. <laughs> are essential. Like that's part of what the sort of cultural heritage of diasporic Jewishness is, right? It's jokes mm -hmm. about death and suffering and complaining about suffering. And without that, like some very essential part of what it means to be Jewish to me is lost. Yes, yes. But let me ask you, does this analogy to the capital G, capital E gay experience, does any of this resonate for you? I think it does. There are certain older gays I know who do, I think, feel they're not reactionary. They're not like, you know, in revolt against wokeness or anything, but they just feel like a little like their wings have been clipped. Like there was a style <laughs> of, you know, gay humor that was kind of dark sometimes. The AIDS crisis, the persecution, legal and otherwise, in the United States, you know, up until pretty recently, there was a style very acerbic, sometimes campy, that could be like to outsiders, extremely mean, cutting, you know, <laughs> yeah. but was somehow sustaining within the community, right? right? And so I was just thinking about like that aspect of this question of humor and comedy. It's like things that develop within communities that then maybe they achieve a more relatively stable and safe position in society. Yeah. You know, their humor kind of spreads or more people encounter it, right? Which is true of both Jewish and gay humor, right? Exactly. Like it's everywhere. Yes. yes. And so it's kind of like how does like a rhetorical style or sense of comedy and humor language that develops within a kind of specific community as that community maybe becomes more mainstream and accepted in this society and, and more people encounter it, like, how is that negotiated? Mm -hmm. um, and then, too, like, what happens when maybe certain gains feel more imperiled? Conditions change. Yeah, conditions change. I think that's those are kind of very interesting questions to me. I don't have uh, the full answer. I do recommend people listen to the Jewish Currents podcast. We'll put it in the show notes. I'm tempted to tell an offensive Jewish joke now, but... 
I think I won't. Maybe I'll save it for the Patreon. <laughs> I'll tell an offensive gay joke. How's that? Okay. Sounds good. We'll then be either both canceled or not together. Sign up if you want to cancel us. Here's another question from Patreon. And this is one I want to spend a little bit of time on. And I'm going to pose it to you, Sam. This person writes, as someone who was in elementary school for most of the Bush in parentheses, they put W years. <laughs> My question pertains to the 9-11 truth or conspiracy theorist movement. Here we go. From my understanding, during this time period, 9-11 inside job conspiracy theories had a syncretic politics, with conspiracy theories taking hold in people on both the left and the right. To this day, there still seems to be remnants of the truther movement's left-wing presence. For example, one of the leftist bookstores in my city has an inside job question mark poster affixed to its podium. <laughs> and then here's where the question cashes out. To what extent do you think a direct line can be drawn from the 9-11 truther movement to today's political conspiracy theories such as QAnon and Pizzagate? Furthermore, what are your thoughts on the left's role complicity in the conspiracy culture of the 2000s? I would start by saying I affirm the very young listeners' premise, the 9-11 truther conspiracy stuff. It was really mostly left-wing in my Plus experience. Plus some libertarian like Ron Paul... Yeah, right. That's right. You're right. You're right. But at the time, that version of libertarianism, even though it like ultimately did have this paleo-libertarian strain, was mostly seen among young people as like, as you, as you have joked, like, what do you call a gay conservative? <laughs> yeah, gay conservative, a libertarian. Like libertarianism of that era was kind of like libertine. And so it was closer to the left on these kinds of issues. But I mean, <laughs> I remember when I was involved in lefty politics in the, you know, pre-Bernie, even the pre-Occupy era, and certainly during the Occupy era, 9-11 truthers were like a not uncommon type of crank to encounter on the left. And it might be just generally true that in the Bush years, the left was more conspiratorial than the right, or that the feeling of Bush being in power, who a lot of leftists thought as an illegitimate president because the 2000 election, plus the war on terror, which had the whole domestic component with the Patriot Act, the lie of the Iraq war, all of this sort of contributed to a sense of sort of like pervasive distrust in the left. But I think the crux of my thesis would be that it also is somewhat of a consequence of the left being really far from power, the real left, you know, being marginalized and therefore conspiratorial politics having a, a greater hold. I mean, <laughs> sort of like simple way to say this, I made this joke to you on the phone, Matt, but it's like, if you have a meeting of your socialist group and there's only 20 people there and two of them are 9-11 truth or conspiracists, <laughs> like, do you really want to ask them to leave? You only have 20 people. You got to go protest on the side of the highway. <laughs> and so like the crank tendency of the left was, I think, somewhat a consequence of its political impotence powerlessness and irrelevance during the Bush years. No, that makes sense to me. And I think just as a general warning that to talk about the left post 9-11 in those first years, you really can't transpose what the left is now. I think you're right. But I also should say it was really rational to be suspicious of the government because the government was constantly lying, of course, and they had lied us into a war, a deadly war. A more pervasive libertarian impulse on the left really made a lot of sense when one of the major fights was over civil liberties in the form of mass surveillance and the Patriot Act. You know, I'm asking those questions in part because this is when I was still on the right. And so I don't yeah. have a kind of 
experience of being on the left as this was happening. But I do remember, I, I want to just agree with you and kind of underscore Bush winning in quotation marks, whatever, in 2000, kind of the way he did, right? The Supreme Court, Florida, recounts, all that. And then going into the Iraq war and the, the questions about the honesty of the Bush administration, right? The evidence, all that, that is very fertile ground for kind of a sense that things were not on the up and up, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Just to say the least. And I, I think that's an important part of it. And I, I would say too, that then the question of like, whether a line can be drawn from these post 9-11 conspiracy theories to today's political conspiracy theories, QAnon, Pizzagate. I mean, I don't really know how to compare them or whether I would draw a line or not, other than to say, I think, you know, one thing to say about more right-wing oriented conspiracy theories like QAnon and Pizzagate is the right has been riddled with conspiracy theories for a long time. You can go back to the John Birch Society. These are things we've discussed on the podcast. And the comparison to the left is interesting, but I don't think you need it at all to really explain the things we've seen on the right more recently. It's not like the left opened Pandora's box with the 9-11 conspiracy. (laughs) I think also like really all of these conspiracy theories do have to do with the degree to which the people expressing them, the political movements expressing them are fundamentally suspicious of the legitimacy of elites. Oh, sure. The 9-11 truther stuff was basically, well, these neocons in the government wanted to go to war in the Middle East so badly that they would kill 3,000 Americans to justify that war, right? They lied to get us into Iraq. Maybe they lied to start this whole thing, you know, and they have all these ties with the Saudis and oil, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, like there there has been, and this is where I'm going to sound like Glenn Greenwald, but there has been <laughs> something that happened during the, the Trump era, which is that the left, broadly speaking, has become the sort of party of trusting authority and relying mm-hmm. on institutions to protect us from the sort of nefarious... Trumpist crowd, right? There are good reasons for that, and there are unfortunate consequences of it. But I do think that, like, when Glenn Greenwald is complaining about the way the left used to be, you know, civil libertarian, he used to be suspicious of the government, they no longer are. Obviously, there's a there's an element of that which is just like apologetics for Trumpism and his sort of uh-huh. instinctive anti-liberal politics. But there's also a truth in it, which is that because of the Trump era suspicion of elites and suspicion of government and Mm -hmm. the national security state has become the purview of the right to a much greater degree. Yes. Because the national security state was the one, you know, that were like signing the long letters saying Trump's unfit and like, you know, the FBI was is the one investigating him. Yes. I mean, I don't think we've ever really talked about this on the podcast and we can't right now. But I will say my my great kind of like counterfactual hypothetical situation is if Bernie somehow had won the Democratic nomination and then won the presidency in 2020, how does the security state react in Mm. those intervening months between November and January 6th, you know, (laughs) how things would have played out. I do have this, it's kind of a dilemma. I don't know exactly how to think about it because I, like, I don't want to trust the CIA and the FBI. They've given us lots of reasons to not trust them historically. Right. But again, as I've often said on the podcast, when you base 
your arguments or kind of perspective, opinion on being against what other people are saying, it's so unmooring. Yeah. Like there's a long distance between being skeptical of the CIA and the FBI and thinking... That guy who hit Pelosi's husband in the head with a hammer was his gay lover as opposed to (laughs) a fucking terrorist. There are certain situations where the best information we probably have may very well come from sources like this. You know, government sources, in other words. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't, we can't be skeptical about it or critical. But yeah. it's once you kind of go down that path, there's no natural stopping point. You know, when your position is what I'm being told is obviously a lie covering up some deeper truth, it's kind of like, well, that can go a lot of different ways. The degree to which really absurd, insane conspiracy thinking. Its proximity to the mainstream of Republican politics is also not comparable to the way that functioned for, like, Democrats in the Bush years. The fact that, like, there's QAnon people in Congress, the fact that, like, there were so many conservative pundits who were playing along with that Paul Pelosi thing, uh-huh. which honestly, like, we never talked about in the podcast. There's really nothing to say except for that was really insane and disgusting. Like, I never, like, kind of on another level. No, Sam, that particular episode and story did kind of break something in me. (laughs) I hate to put it that way, but it really was just this moment where I was just like, what the fuck is your problem? Yeah. Like, what the hell is going on here? I mean, it was so vicious and crude and unfeeling towards the suffering. You know, like this was a guy who had his head bashed in with a hammer, right? Yeah. After his home had been broken into. And to see like people like Elon Musk involved, Like Republicans playing footsie with it in various ways. It was just to see it in action was jaw-dropping. Yeah, so I think that does have to do with some way in which the combination of the internet and, you know, sort of the Trumpification of the party and the idea that, like, there's no lie you you shouldn't tell if it has some kind of even short-term benefit to your political movement. Or at least just even if it just has some short-term benefit for your Twitter following, you know? (laughs) Conspiratorial for clout, like, is just a huge part of this, too. And I I think the reason it just hit me so hard is, just as you were saying, there's a real sense in which the rule of law, democratic governance, constitutionalism, all these things are dependent on some level of not going there. Yeah. Like if you push things to their furthest logical conclusion or illogical conclusion, I guess as it may be, where does that leave you? No forbearance, no sense of limits to what you'll say, no bomb you won't throw. It's just like it it makes it, you just kind of, that just leads to no place good. Free speech is a pretty strong principle, but it does rely on some basic you know, virtues on the part of the of the governing class because they could always lie they could always lie they have huge platforms they could always say something absolutely crazy and get people riled up about it yeah actually the guardrails are pretty flimsy yes all right i'll read this question from twitter there are some hopeful signs that the anti-trans backlash has peaked for example the midterm results suggest it's an electoral loser for the gop arguable but Anyway, we can talk about it. But some darker indications that its proponents have only been emboldened, given that they have much more openly embraced the Club Q massacre, the shooting at the gay club in Colorado. And meanwhile, the New York Times has been leaning into their, quote, serious questions about puberty blockers style both sides narrative, seemingly importing the UK press's longstanding position. What's your read on which way the wind is blowing among the self-styled intellectual vanguard of the right? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question. I have a sort of two-pronged response to it. One is that I think it's totally possible that, for example, 
a certain extreme rhetoric about trans people and related issues, public education, teachers, etc. It's very possible that the right and the Republican Party can overplay their hand in those areas, right? Yeah. And, and nominate freaks like Carrie Lake and Blake Masters and Doug Mastriano, who will lose elections, while the radical edges of the right are killing LGBTQ people, right? Yeah. Those two things, I think, can both be true at the same time. Right. And when you were reading the question, you kind of expressed some ambivalence about whether the midterms are a sign that the anti-trans backlash has peaked. That particular question has it peaked. I do not know. There's a lot to say. We, we've said our piece about the midterms. There's even a lot more we could say. But it does seem to me, one brief comment I'll make about this in particular is that it does seem to me that, as our friend Eric Levitz wrote after the election, it was a persuasion election. Like, more Republicans turned out than Democrats in these midterms. But in a lot of cases, in important races, like Dr. Oz was running like seven points behind like a generic Republican Senate candidate in the country, mm -hmm. right? Basically, long story short, this was an election where a fair number of people who probably were Republicans were at the end of the day persuaded not to vote for lunatics. Yeah. And that might be taken as a positive sign, like in a basic sense, I think so. But how it relates to the trans issue in particular, I can't really say. And I think, you know, in light of the, the shooting and just the general tenor right now, it's maybe this the midterms were a brushback that they can't behave a certain way on the campaign trail that, you know, the, the kind of parents revolt so-called parents revolt isn't going to be a necessary winner for them. But at the same time, that really doesn't say much about the safety of trans people and LGBTQ people more broadly. Right. And uh, Ron DeSantis won big in Florida. And totally. he has been totally an avatar of the culture war about gender and sexuality. And same in Texas, right? Yeah. So it, it is hard to say. And I think that that distinction that you make between like, it might be that the trans issue, like demonizing trans athletes and kids <laughs> is like maybe not as big a winner for the Republican Party as they're like, super online contingent of slathering sickos hoped, you know, libs of TikTok. And that's good that it's not an electoral winner. But that doesn't mean that the kind of prominence of that kind of discourse in our media, in our rhetoric, in our political life doesn't continue to endanger LGBT people, right. nor that like states with Republican majorities won't continue to try to pass really nasty punishing legislation. Right. I mean, if I put some amount of hope in the kind of, you know how everyone's always talking about the discourse of party activist politics on the left is distorted by the fact that like all the people involved in it are highly educated people living in like coastal cities and stuff like that. Uh -huh. But the same is true for the right. Like they're also a little bubble. Their preoccupations are not necessarily the preoccupations of the base in every instance. Yeah. I gave this talk after the midterms about what I thought had happened. And I ended up kind of digging into the political science research that I think is kind of like, I don't want to say it contradicts, but it's at least in tension with kind of the emphasis on polarization we've seen mm. in recent mm. years. And the findings of this is it's terms like the ideological innocence of many Americans, meaning most Americans don't have extremely well thought through coherent, systematic, ideological viewpoints that they bring to politics, right? Mm. And in fact, you know, most Americans, politics is way down the list of like the things they identify 
in terms of like who they are and what they care about. Like most people oh, will yeah. say their family, their community, their faith are more important than their political affiliation. So kind of in response to what you just said, I kind of have the sense that there's, you know, a decently sized pool of voters who they're not super plugged in. They're not watching the libs of TikTok account. They're not on Twitter. And what they hear about these issues is kind of fragmentary and unsystematic. And yeah. my hope is that there's a certain like reservoir of goodwill there that yeah. just this is where like the American libertarian instinct isn't all bad, kind of like live and let live. Yeah. It's just like like who cares? Who cares what pronoun someone wants to use? Like, is it really more important to you than putting food on the table than the cost of your health care, the price of gas even. Uh, I'm not so sure. That's kind of my read on this question. Is there's just a lot of people who probably don't have extremely well thought through positions on it. And if it seems like people are being cruel and excessively focused on something like this, I'm just not sure how much it will register with, quote unquote, ordinary people. Yeah, especially if it's like they're doing it in this kind of insular language. Right. Like if somebody says to you like groomers in the schools and you don't like haven't seen the particular Fox News segment about right. that, like you might be like, what's wrong with you? I'm not <laughs> like, what the hell are you talking about? Exactly. There has been times when there's been sort of like introspection in the New Right Coalition. And one of the things that they talk about is that there is this problem of this sort of folk libertarianism of a lot of their perspective constituencies. And that doesn't really always jive with this newfound enthusiasm for using the levers of the state to tell people how they should live. <laughs> yes. Just, just people who are just like, you know, I don't fucking care. Yeah, My neighbor exactly. has a trans kid and I don't really like that neighbor, but like the kid's nice and like, I don't care, you know, <laughs> like it doesn't affect me. That kind of American voter, which in some ways was like just way more understood to be the norm of conservative voter for many years on the right is a little bit occluded by the prominence of these new right culture warriors. Yes. You know, I, I've thought about it in the context of, of gay rights. Like, I don't know how deep the kind of affirmation of gay and lesbians goes in this country, but I think at like at a not deep level, there's a lot of people who just are like, what goes on behind closed doors? It's not my, you know what I mean? They're just not obsessed yeah. with it, which is like the normal healthy thing. It's, it's, it's actually kind of peculiar to be totally obsessed with the, the bodies and sex lives of people you've never even met. All right. This person from Twitter started their question by saying, why are you and Matt the best ever? They were DMing me. <laughs> But more seriously, have you guys been paying attention to the growing reformed evangelical quote-unquote Christian nationalism movement? Curious about your takes, as it seems to have moved from the crazy fringe into public discourse through people like Mueller, Wolf, etc. You know who these people are, Matt. You have been following this discourse. What is Christian nationalism and what's going on? Oh, oh boy. <laughs> this is a great question. And it's one, I think, like, in regards to the podcast, I've been ambivalent about for a while, meaning the kind of surge in the use of the term white Christian nationalism in particular. Even now, I don't have a super well thought out position on, like, what I think of that label. I have some ambivalences. But I do think the situation has kind of changed by <laughs> right-wing Christians embracing that term themselves. Right. So it went from an exonym to... 
what, an endonym? That sounds right to me. Like people on the left and like sort of liberal historians and sociologists, and academics, scientists, yeah. academics were saying there is such a thing as white Christian nationalism. And then people within the movement of white evangelicalism at least started saying, no, no, we are Christian nationalists. Exactly, Sam. And one of the people mentioned in this question, Wolf, is this character named Stephen Wolf, And he wrote a book that was just published earlier this month, November 1st, I believe, called The Case for Christian Nationalism. Now, there's just a lot to unpack here. So who is Stephen Wolf? I was very interested to learn, Sam, that he did his PhD in political philosophy, aka political theory, at LSU, Louisiana State, mm -hmm. which has long been a kind of conservative readout for graduate students studying political theory. It was where Eric Vogelin taught, oh. at least for many years, and his kind of principal disciple among Americans, Ellis Sandoz. And another guy, Jim Stoner, who was a Straussian trained at Harvard, I believe by Harvey Mansfield, taught there. And this is where Stephen Wolf did his PhD. He completed it in 2020. And where did he land for a postdoc, Sam? Can you guess? Robbie George's <laughs> program at Princeton, uh, the Madison program. He was like a, a postdoctoral fellow there from 2021, 2022. So I'm guessing it was like fall of 2021 through this past spring. Huh. So just a few weeks ago, he publishes Case for Christian Nationalism. And among the blurbs is like Rusty Reno, R.R. Reno. And the book was published. This is where it gets us into some real, you know, into the weeds, but it might be worth explaining. It was published by Canon Press. Now, what is Canon Press? It's out of Moscow, Idaho, <laughs> which is where uh, Douglas Wilson, a reformed pastor, I hate to use the word scholar, I'm not sure if that's appropriate, but someone who fancies themselves a scholar of sorts, mm -hmm. has like his church and a, like a university, a college, I believe. There And it's kind of like this, this town now sort of, I think, run by this religious group in a way. And their publishing arm is, again, Canon Press. Now, Doug Wilson, he was one of the blurbs, too. And he's known for being, I want to be careful how I say this, but I think it'd be fair to say he has connections to the Christian Reconstruction Movement of Rush Dooney, which is kind of like biblical law. It's a, a form of theocracy. Calvinist fundamentalism. Yes, Calvinist fundamentalism, you know, mixed with like a theocratic vision of the United States. And Wilson, among other things, wrote a book defending slavery. <laughs> I think he kind of later has retracted this book or admitted criticisms of it. But Wilson wrote this book, I think, in the 80s called Southern Slavery As It Was, which he co-wrote with <laughs> League of the South co-founder, J. Stephen Wilkins, and in it they write this, slavery produced in the South a genuine affection between the races that we believe we can say has never existed in any nation before the war, meaning the Civil War, or since. Wow. It's that kind of shit. So Stephen Wolf writes this book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, published by Wilson's outfit, blurred by him, blurred by Rusty Reno. This is kind Jesus. of the milieu he comes from, right? Now, this book was controversial at least in my kind of wing of Christian circles, some of whom are conservative and you know, we're paying attention to this. Obviously, like embracing the term Christian nationalism is <laughs> problematic to say the least, to me yeah. theologically incoherent in many ways. But it kind of reached a new level of controversy when Stephen Wolf, he's co-host of this podcast with someone named Thomas Accord or Accord, A-C-H-O-R-D, who, among other things, is the co-author of a book called Who is My Neighbor in Anthology and Natural Relations. 
And this like natural relations in the subtitle of, of Akard's book, the term is called kinism, and it's basically like a Christian version of white nationalism. Yeah. And it's it's basically that like you should be in community with, marry, build families with basically your own race and ethnicity. Now, just recently, like in the past week or so, it's come out that Thomas Acord, aka Stephen Wolf's co-host of this podcast, actually has this horrible Twitter account under yeah. the name Tullius Adlan that even Rod Dreyer describes as racist, anti-Semitic, and misogynist. Yeah. Now, why do I mention Rod? Because, <laughs> I mean, at one level, it's unbelievable, but at another level, it's totally believable. This Thomas Acord, the podcast ghost of Stephen Wolf, who it turns out has this racist anonymous account. Yes. Ran the classical Christian school, classical academy that Rod's kids went to in Louisiana. <laughs> it's just kind of this like kind of deranged melange of things that came together, like this book on nationalism, his podcast co-host, its connection to Rod Dreher. It was just like, wow, this is crazy. So let me just say... I'm even more outside of this than you are. I'm kind of like rubbernecking this controversy from my standpoint on Twitter, where I, I do follow a, a number of accounts that are interested in this kind of stuff. So I'm aware of it. But what's very interesting about this is that basically Stephen Wolf has been playing this role of normalizing Christian nationalism for a much more sort of mainstream Christian conservative public, right? You know, he's on the National Conservatism website. I don't know if he has spoken at NatCon conferences. He's definitely in good standing with the NatCons. He's, you know, being taken seriously by these Christian conservatives. That they've been sort of presenting themselves as like, we can have this conversation about like a more nativist version of Christianity, and it doesn't make us beyond the pale for evangelical elites, elite thinkers to like talk about and think about, you know? Alistair Roberts, the, who wrote this case for Acord being this nasty troll on Twitter, you know, says, I'm sympathetic to some of their ideas. They are trying to re-sanitize a conversation that they do want to have about the legitimacy of a kind of Christian nationalism, but that Stephen Wolf and his associations have actually made more difficult. I mean, Wolf has not backed down. Wolf is fundraising on Acord's behalf because he got because he lost his job at the school you were describing and selling his books and saying he's going to give some of the proceeds to Acord and his family <laughs> before the holiday because it's so terrible what the like woke conservatives, I guess, right. have done to him. I just, you know, I mean, I hope that the listeners are remotely interested in the in the sort of nuance of this situation because it is interesting that it's coming from within the community of nominally conservative Christians. But, you know, as a person outside of it, you do just have to be like, well, what the fuck did you think? You know, <laughs> like, what do you, it shouldn't be surprising that a guy who is sort of advocating this like muscular Christian nationalism and, you know, rejecting this sort of idea of, of universalism in, in Christian doctrine and saying that there's some way to reconcile that with like nativist politics, anti-immigrant politics. It's just you're surprised that he's got some friends who are white nationalists, that he himself might have some sympathy with white supremacist ideology. <laughs> it's a little bit like you laid down with dogs and got fleas. Yeah, I mean, this is something we've seen like in the history of the right again and again, right? Like trying to police these boundaries between respectable opinion on the right and ones that fall outside the boundaries and yeah. how kind of, <laughs> how uncertain those of us 
not on the right should be about those efforts and what they actually accomplish and what distinctions are actually being drawn. I don't think it's wrong for Alistair to make this intervention. It's worthwhile. No, I agree. And they deserve some kind of respect. I mean, when these things happen and you call out someone who maybe up to that point you nominally thought was a fellow laborer in your cause, there's a personal cost. There's a professional blowback. It's unpleasant. So I don't want to not give the people who've called out Wolf and Acord, I'm not trying to deprive them any credit. But if you kind of step back, as you're saying, I mean, to just quote from the Roberts post, he says, this book of Acords about natural relations, uh, Robert says, indeed, Acord favorably quotes statements from me in his book, nor am I an opponent in principle of Christian nationalism, a position advanced by some of the voices I most admire in political theology and of which, in some form, I myself might reasonably be classed an advocate. Yeah. So I think that's just the internal element of this is super interesting to me to observe. Yeah. I mean, for listeners who might not be so interested in the sort of internal dynamics of sort of the guard railing of legitimate discourse within like a (laughs) Christian conservative movement, it's notable that the most prominent proponent of like self-declared Christian nationalism has already been, within days of his book coming out, been identified with out-and-out white supremacy. So maybe we should leave it at that for now. Yes. All right. Well, let's do one more question. And I'm going to direct this one at you, Matt. Again. (laughs) Thank you for guiding us through that uh, (laughs) deep swamp marsh of of weirdo conservative Christian uh, internecine debate, but I think the listeners will get something out of it. I had to click over to Rod Dreher's blog to get the real dish, which is always a, for personal spiritual reasons, I try to avoid Rod's blog these days. Uh, <laughs> but in this case, I had to click over to get the real scoop because it was, it was just crazy when, it, like that was the detail that just, okay, sorry, like if I had written this in a novel, that like if it all cashed out in somehow involving Rod Dreher's kid's school. And Rod, one of the sleuthing that Rod did was that he recognized the logo on the classroom door that the anonymous account had posted on his Twitter as yes. the logo of the school where his kids go. Yes, there's photographic evidence. It's real, some real sleuthing, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Rod. He's got nothing to do now that he's divorced. In Budapest, just hanging out. Just online. Okay, I'm going to ask you one more question, Matt. It's a good one. This is from Patreon. I'd like to know how you think the Dixiecrats, Wallace, Thurman, and the like, shaped the modern conservative movement. I see them as somewhat distinct from both the National Review set and the sort of Nixon and Reagan era conservative. I will say my thinking on this question in particular, I've mentioned this book before by Joe Lowndes, L-O-W. N-D-E-S. It's called From the New Deal to the New Right. Joe's great. Yeah. He's really an indispensable thinker to read, I think, about kind of right populism, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. what's happening on the right. And this book in particular, it just made an impression on me because it, it kind of complicated a certain idea of like the backlash to the civil rights movement and the rise of the right. And by that, I mean that some of these backlashes have to be prepared, right, and strategized for and organized around. And then when the moment comes, when it happens, it's actually been a while in the making. And I think this book, From the New Deal to the New Right, kind of makes a case that the right had had their eye on the Dixiecrats, meaning the Southern Democrats who were kind of hostile to maybe elements of the New Deal, certainly to the civil rights movement, desegregation, et cetera, right? The, the mm-hmm. white Southern Democrats who wanted to bolt from the party 
in this case, literally ran on third party, like Strom Thurmond did as a Dixiecrat. But like, how do you move from thinking that there's this opportunity to affecting that shift politically? And I think this book really makes the case that that was something that people thought about. And again, like it wasn't just the civil rights movement happened and there was a, a backlash that was part of it, but it, it was a backlash that had been prepared for. And the kind of political seeds of it, the coalitional party aspect of it had been thought through for a while. It was thought through in 1968, as we talked about on the Nixon episode. And I said this during the episode about Nixon agonesis, but I'll repeat it now. I think one of the things that book really taught me was that when it came to the 68 convention and Nixon holding on to the nomination, the importance of Strom Thurmond, just it's hard to overstate it. Well, it's Kevin Phillips in Nixon Agonistas who gives that very frank interview to Wills where he says, yes, Wallace is helping us because he's peeling off this white Democrat voter in the South who is going to be ours, if not this time, then next time. You know, he says that basically explicitly. And then he also says explicitly when Will sort of says in a thing that seems naive from the standpoint of today, but wouldn't necessarily have been in the past. He says, well, well, can't the Democrats make up for the losses in, in the South of Wallace voters with black voters in the South? What Kevin Phillips says is, well, you know, the entire white Democratic Party will leave once it's a black party. When Southerners move, they move fast, he says. Right. Yeah, exactly. And something you said to me before we started recording, Matt, was that thinking about the Dixiecrats does help us understand how the sort of contradictions in the New Deal order were undone by the race question. Yes, yes. You know, there's been, I feel like in recent years, both like at the level of discourse, right, and various publications, big books that have highlighted the kind of racial failings of the New Deal, Right. Yeah. The, the exclusion of African-Americans, um, especially the kind of work they did from some of the protections and you know benefits of the New Deal. And if you view the New Deal in a too rosy, too heroic way, it's falling apart. That coalition might not make total sense to you. Right. But if you're aware of these failings of the New Deal, the, the racial aspects of it in particular, it makes sense that like, you know, oh, Southern Democrats were getting real antsy, right? Mm -hmm. If you actually have a that kind of understanding of the New Deal, then how the new right kind of emerged out of its wreckage, I think makes a lot more sense. Well, should we close out? This has been a great uh, episode. I hope so, Sam. I hope our listeners enjoyed it. I feel like it was all very serious, though. Well, if you enjoyed this and you haven't gotten enough, and maybe you want some more fun questions mixed in. I think we're going to continue this over on the Patreon feed because we got so many good questions and we don't want to stop. So that's just to say this is a hard sell for people to subscribe on Patreon. But if you want more mailbag, we're going to do more of it over there. And the Patreon questions will be really revealing. <laughs> yeah, we avoided all the ones that, where we really have to bear our souls. Uh, so if you want the good, the good dish, the good tea, the good gossip, whatever, subscribe on Patreon. We're going to answer some more of these questions over there. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Yes. Thank you for listening, everyone. See you next time. Bye-bye. Three.